not everyone else. There we go. Everyone can hear me. Fantastic. I managed to get away with doing two talks where I didn't have to have someone come help me with the microphone then. That was starting to be a running um, good thing. Anyway, um, welcome. Um, to what about? We hope that if you were here last week, that that really served you and blessed you and equipped you. Um, I would suggest that if you weren't here last week, that you would go back and and listen to the talk, only because what we covered in kind of the whole area of sex um, in particular was kind of an umbrella kind of topic, an umbrella way of thinking that actually impacts a lot of the stuff that we're thinking about. So actually what we spoke about last week does bear um, and impacts upon the idea of gender and gender identity, um, and also what Owen's going to be looking at next week in terms of homosexuality and our sexuality, actually what we looked at last week. So just just, just to, to say that actually that will help and, and hopefully aid you if you weren't here to be able to go back and to look at that. So transgender. This is something that has been kind of building for a long period of time. This is something that for me um, has been something that I've been really trying to get my head around and really research and go deeply in um, for a couple of years now, mostly because it's something which young people are being spoken to um, about all the time. Okay, so this is especially prevalent in schools, and we're going to chat about that in a little bit. And I wanted to make sure that I had the information and I understood the issue enough to be able to have like, helpful conversations um, with people and to have topics and conversations with people. What I found is that actually the more I looked into it, actually the more conversations I ended up having with people about it who actually struggled with this and where this was an issue for, um, for them. And this is becoming something that has been increasing in my life um, that I've been able to try and talk with people about. And it's a massive topic. And for all of us, it's, touched, it's probably hit our radar in some way, shape, or form, okay? In, 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 whether that is just over media and we're seeing it on films and TV shows and, and kind of in literature or music or newspaper articles, whatever. If it's just that kind of sense of it, or whether it's kind of government policy and how that's working its way down and working its way through into our workplaces and things like that, or actually whether it's because our, we've got children in schools whose schools are putting forward a transgender positive kind of ideology or rather a trans positive um, kind of way of thinking that kind of doesn't bear any talking back against, okay? Whether it's in any of these or all of these kind of places, what we're seeing is that um, this has been something that's been building. So what happened is actually after the approval of gay marriage in the US, Vanity Fair ran a magazine, ran a cover magazine, and the cover magazine was about a guy called Bruce Jenner, who was an American Olympic athlete, who basically came out and said that he had felt like actually his whole life he was a woman. And after talking to himself, talking to his wife and his six kids um, and things like that, actually he said that he was going to transition. Um, and his pastor, interestingly enough, he said that he decided that he needed to be true to himself and he was going to be called Caitlin. Um, so this is the Vanity Fair cover magazine that went out. Um, being called Call Me Caitlin. Caitlin Jenner then got her own TV show and, and everything like that. Okay. So this was kind of the start. At this point, Time magazine, again in the US, they said that transgender was the next civil rights frontier, okay? So that the next thing that was going to be that civil rights, the next battle civil rights had to win was for transgender people. And this was something that the culture had to change and shift to. This was especially prevalent coming off the back of kind of gay marriage being legalized and all of this sort of stuff. It's been, and it's been pushing forward. And this is now everywhere, isn't it? Whether that's bathroom debates, debates about how this lands in the army, debates how this lands in sports. It's everywhere, this topic and this conversation. And it's increasingly one-sided. It's not so 
much of a conversation as it is a direction, okay? Now, also, the gender clinics, which are kind of the medical kind of side of things which address kind of transgender or gender dysphoria in the UK, since kind of this, this sort of stuff has happened, since it's become more prevalent, they, the referrals to these clinics have gone up by a thousand percent. Okay, so if you have not yet been personally touched by this issue, you will be very, very soon. It's almost guaranteed. Okay, and so this is something that we need to be kind of dealing with, and this is something that we need to be kind of processing. A bit closer to home, as Sai actually already said, for we, you know, this has become a live issue for us as a church twice already with two different people um, that we've been engaging with where this has come out, um, and we've had varying degrees of conversation um, in and around that. Um, it's also something that's kind of quite a live issue for our area. Um, obviously, we're just down the road from Brighton, um, and so in terms of gay pride and kind of all that sort of stuff, we, there's a big presence there. In Eastbourne, a couple of years ago, in order to celebrate this in a primary school, kind of the gay, gay pride week, they drew a line on a whiteboard, and kids kind of around the age, age of 10, and they put female at one end, and they put male on the other end, and they said, okay, what everyone is going to come and do is you're going to come and put a cross on where on the gender spectrum you are at 10 years old, okay? Also, this is real for us as well, because in a, in a school in Helsham, there is a transgender teacher, okay, who, who, who dresses as a man some days and dresses as a woman on other days, okay? So this is real, and this is in our area. This is something that we should, as well as um, can be engaging with, okay? Now, I just want to pause at that point and just comment about kind of confusion and fear. And the reason for that is because I think actually when we look into this as an issue, it can be both really confusing and can spark fear in us. And actually what fear often does is fear produces defensiveness and anger. And what it can cause us to do is it can cause us to draw battle lines or batten down the hatches and bury our head in the sand and hope that it never kind of hits us. It's never an issue for us. Or we kind of get aggressive about it and defensive about it and end up responding out of fear rather than out of love. And actually, I'm a dad. You know, my little girl is growing up in this culture. In fact, she's probably going to grow up in it infinitely more than kind of older kids because it's going to have been so assumed. Um, and there is such a temptation for me to get afraid and want to just protect and homeschool and just take her away from actually a lot of that. But actually, that that's not where we need to respond as Christians. But as Christians, we believe that we've got a God who's in control, that God is not surprised by this, God is not scared by this, God is not nervous about this, God is not powerless, but that God is good and faithful and will be working out his plans and purposes. And so before we go any further and kind of talk a lot more about kind of what transgender means and come with some terms, I just want to share a testimony, um, a story um, from a couple of years ago at the Catalyst Festival, because I think it helps frame what I just said, okay? And so at the Catalyst Festival a couple of years ago, <clears throat> I had the privilege of kind of doing a seminar with the youth group and the youth work there, and the seminar ran across two days, and it was basically how to be a man of God, how to be a woman of God, okay? That was, that was the notion of it. And as I was reading my talk on the way kind of back from a holiday the week before um, Catalyst, I felt the Holy Spirit just prompt me and just say, you need to put a comment about transgender in there. Now, I hadn't looked into transgender at all at this point. If I'm perfectly honest, it wasn't even on the periphery of what I was thinking about, but Holy Spirit just nudged me and just said to put a comment on that, okay? And so both days before I spoke, I said, if there's anyone in here who actually, you know, this topic of gender is a really 
big issue for you, and actually there is confusion there, and there is hurt and pain, I just want you to know you're welcome, you're loved, you are in the right place, and we'd love to chat and pray with you, and just moved on, not really expecting anything to happen. Anyway, on the second day, we, said we got into groups, kind of gender groups, so guys and girls, to pray with one another about what we've spoken about in terms of man of God and woman of God. And there was this guy in the group who was really, really upset, really upset, and I saw he's visibly upset, but before, as we finished, before I was able to catch him, he kind of ran out the tent, and I was like, okay, you know, there's not, not much more I can do, I don't know his name, I don't know what church he's from or anything like that. As we were kind of tidying up, one of the leaders brought this guy back in. And as it turns out, this guy was actually a girl who was seeking to transition to being a boy who they felt like they were a boy. And actually, they were super upset and found the whole situation really difficult, but had actually come to both talks. And so we were able to pray with them and just share God's love for them and just pray that God would come and meet with them in a powerful way. And kind of, they were a lot calmer and they left. About a week later, the Catalyst Festival got an email, so Catalyst got an email from that person's mum saying that before Catalyst, they'd been super against church, they'd been really anti-church, really anti-God, they'd said they were going to transition, the parent had no idea what to do, no idea, and they were so anti, they didn't want to come to the Catalyst Festival, they'd come kicking and screaming, and there was no one really of their age in the youth group, and they said that after, since we kind of that Catalyst time where we'd been able to sit and pray with them, they were so excited about the idea of going to church, the idea of God, and God accepting and loving them and speaking to them that they were actually really excited about that coming to church. And their parent was so thankful that there'd been people there to love and pray and speak into this issue. So rather than just being kind of there's, you know, these battle lines or kind of this is really difficult, actually God can and will and does work in these situations and through people to bring healing and peace and hope. And just as we start this evening, it's just we're starting from a place of God is good and God is present, God will work, rather than kind of soaring from Here's the battle lines. This is scary. We need to kind of get on the defensive about it, okay? Okay, other thing to say, really want to emphasize this point, that tonight is about information, not about ammunition, which is just straight off the back of my other point. Actually, sometimes when we come to stuff like this, actually we can take what we, what we hear and we can use it as ammunition to fire back against people who are kind of of the opposite opinion to us. And what we need tonight to be is not about ammunition to fire back, but about information in order to better love people. So when people are, are getting married or kind of in relationships, they do stuff, don't they, like the five love languages, and they learn how their other partner receives love, how they give love, and through that information, they know, they learn how to better love people. And this evening, that's what this is about. We're going to gain the information that, so that we can learn how to better love people um, for Jesus, okay? Right. We are not going to get a chance to cover everything. Sai's already said that. You will be aware of it by the time we finish this evening. So I just want to start straight away by just introducing some books and some podcasts that you guys can go and listen to. Um, I have missed out just my brain just left it out, actual resources in the booklet. So if you want further resources, I recommend you write this down now, okay? Um, just because I haven't, I missed that out, um, okay? So the first book is by a guy called Vaughan Roberts, okay? V-A-U-H-G-H-N, sorry, Roberts. Um, it's not this book. This is a book that I recommended last week, um, but it's exactly the same size as this. It's very, very little, and it's yellow, and it's just called Transgender, Okay, that's the whole name, that's the whole title, it's just called Transgender. This is a great introduction, and this is a fantastic resource to give out to, I think, particularly young people or people who are not really wanting to engage in the issue very much um, or haven't really got a lot of time. It is a really good introduction, but it is just an introduction. The second one is this, 
This is Andrew T. Walker. Andrew T. Walker, God and the Transgender Debate. This is the best book I have read on this, and this actually brings together a lot of the information I've read, heard, and listened to. I think this is probably a book that almost every Christian should have on their bookshelves. This is both pastoral and helpful, and it goes into details about kind of the reasons, what kind of has sparked the debate, and everything else like that as well. I recommend this. God and the Transgender Debate. Okay, Andrew T. Walker, God and the Transgender Debate. This one is much more highbrow. It is not easy reading. It is not nice reading. It's called When Harry Met Sally by Ryan T. Anderson. Okay, When Harry Became Sally, sorry, by Ryan T. Anderson. Um, the title is actually unhelpful um, for the conversation and things like that. It's actually unhelpful. But... This is all about the politics, the ideology, the inconsistencies, and the science behind the transgender activism kind of stuff, okay? Behind transgender activism, behind kind of where it's going in government policy and stuff. This is the science, the policy, and stuff like that. I would only recommend you read this if you have the Andrew T. Walker one. The reason for this is because if you read this, all you're going to have is ammunition. It does not bring the gospel to bear on it. It does not talk about pastoral situations. It doesn't say how to helpfully love people, but it gives information about the science behind it and some of the reasons why it is not as helpful as it sounds. Okay? So only if you're sciencey or medically or that way inclined. Okay? In terms of talks, there is a particular one on the King's Arms Bedford site. They've done a series called Love Matters, um, and it's called something transgender. Um, okay, and it's by Phil Wilthew, and it's absolutely fantastic. It is everything I want this talk to be, okay, in terms of informative and pastoral and everything. So I fully recommend that to you. There's another one on the King's Church Eastbourne site by Andrew Wilson in their Citizens series. So that's King's Church Eastbourne, Andrew Wilson in their Citizens series. Um, called uh, Transgender and Intersex, okay? And that was done a couple of years ago, and again, that is absolutely fantastic, just to recommend that to you. That's not because we're not going to cover any of the things they cover. We are going to cover a lot of the things they cover, but actually some of those books or some of those talks go into much greater detail on certain things than we will have the time to do tonight. Okay, before we go anywhere else, I want to do some terms, Okay, because the terms can often be some of the most confusing parts about this. In your booklets, you've got these terms, and you've also got a lot more terms. Okay? There's only six that I want to highlight in particular. Okay? So the first one I want to highlight is the term cisgender. Okay? Cisgender person is a person whose gender identity matches that of their biological sex. Okay, so that is the vast majority of people, and I imagine the vast majority of people in this room. Okay, we are cisgender people. That's what the term that is used for us. I've put in brackets sex assigned at birth because that is currently what they people want to be, to be called. Um, however, we, as for various reasons, as you'll see, wouldn't call it that. We would call it biological sex. Okay, but I've put sex assigned at birth because when people say that, that's what they mean. They mean your biological sex, the sex that you are born with. Okay. Gender dysphoria is the psychological condition which is marked by significant emotional distress and impairment in life functioning caused by a lack of congruence between gender identity and biological sex. 
Okay, in layman's terms, gender dysphoria is about your gender identity not matching your biological sex and that causing a great deal of pain and anguish and things like that, okay? So that's what gender dysphoria is. Gender identity is a term used to refer to an individual's personal sense of identity as masculine or feminine or some combination of the two, okay? Gender fluid is a term used for people who prefer to be flexible about their gender identity. So within their gender identity, they may fluctuate between genders. So they may be a man one minute, a woman the next, or a third sex later in the day, somewhere in between. They may express multiple gender identities at the same time. So if someone is gender fluid, that's what they're talking about. They've not got a fixed gender. Their gender is exactly that, fluid. It can change at any given moment, any given day, and even have multiple genders at the same time. Okay? Intersex is a general term for a variety of physical conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't seem to fit the typical definitions of female or male. Okay? This is, includes chromosomes, gonads, or genitals. Okay? So basically, intersex is a physical condition. And often these two groups, intersex and transgender, which we'll define in a minute, Get very, they get confused, okay? But they are vastly different things. Intersex is a very rare physical phenomenon where someone is born with an extra chromosome with ambiguous genitals or, and things like that, which means that they have to have an operation or they have some form of treatment. Or often, if they've only got an extra chromosome, they never find out until they're trying for children and things like that. That means that they, they, they don't fit the standards kind of male-female kind of biological sex, okay? So that's called intersex. In fact, a, the vast majority of intersex people, a lot of intersex people, do not consider themselves transgender at all. It is a, they, they don't struggle with gender dysphoria, generally. They don't. It's not something which a lot of intersex people report. A lot of intersex people will have a surgery and will live out an identity normally very happily for, of, of, one gen, of, of one sex, sorry. Okay. Transgender, on the other hand, is a psychological condition, okay? It is the umbrella term for the state or condition of identifying or expressing a gender identity that does not mat match a person's biological sex, okay? Gender dysphoria is the pain, is the anguish, is the struggle between with the idea of your biological sex not matching your gender identity. Transgender is living out an identity that is different from that of your biological sex, okay? So I would be a man living out an identity as a woman. That would make me transgender, okay, in that sense. Now, the two don't always come together, but the vast majority of the time, that's, that's why people become transgender, okay? It's because they have gender dysphoria or claim to have gender dysphoria. Now, as Christians, our baseline and our conviction and where we act from is the authority of the Bible, okay? And we're going to spend kind of, when we break in a moment, after that break, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at what the Bible says, and after that, we're going to end up looking at what our response says, okay? Because the Bible, as Christians, is our authority, and that's where we look to for everything. However, we did just want to emphasize that part of the reason why we've also come to the conclusion that we've come to is from the Word of God first and foremost, but also because in, when looking at the science, and there is an actual debate in the medical community about the best way to treat people with gender dysphoria. Okay? So one of the reasons why we conclude what we conclude is because actually there is a 
there is a disagreement, a debate in science over what is actually the best way for treating gender dysphoria in people. So, the current method, if you were to go and be referred to a gender clinic, so assuming you've gone to the doctor, you've said, I feel like I'm a woman, even though I biologically present as a man, and they did a couple of sections, you know, sessions with them, and they think, actually, yeah, I think you've got gender dysphoria, you would go to a gender clinic, and they would encourage you to do a few things, okay? And this is typically kind of the way that it works. You would transition socially, okay? So you would say, you would start using a different name, you would start using different pronouns, so rather than being called he, you, I would be called she, okay? And I would change my name to Samantha, and I would live out socially what my trans identity is, okay? I would, I would live that out. Now, if you are a kid at this point, what they do is they give you puberty blockers to stop you from going through puberty, okay? and to stop the kind of puberty hormones coming into your body and things like that if you're a kid. If you're an adult, what you would then do if you wanted to continue with transition is you would take cross-sex hormones. Okay, cross-sex hormones being testosterone for women and estrogen for men in order to help your body start to present and look more like that of the opposite sex. Okay? Now, it's worth saying at this point that cross-sex hormones make everyone infertile. Okay, so if you take cross-sex hormones, you will become infertile. There is not a case where that's not the case, okay? Finally, if you want to continue in your transition, you would have sex reassignment surgery, okay? And there's varying degrees of that, about, of that and I don't, I'm not going to go into it all, okay? But you'd have sex reassignment surgery in order to remove parts and add parts to make you look like someone of the opposite sex, okay? That's, that, that's the transition. That's the current method, the prescribed, recommended method of dealing with gender dysphoria. Okay, by, the, by uh, a lot of the medical community and, in fact, uh, every trans activist. Okay, that, that's, that's the way that works. Now, not everyone, not everyone does all of those things. So not everyone goes, I have got gender dysphoria, I want to live out a, gen a transgender identity, therefore I will, I will end up in sex reassignment surgery. Not everyone does that. Some people will just socially transition, and that will be the end of it. Some people will kind of go to cross-sex hormones, and that will be the end of it, because gender dysphoria is on a scale. You can have a very, very mild gender dysphoria, and you can have a very, very severe gender dysphoria. And actually, people experience it on a kind of a spectrum, okay? And so depending on where you are on that spectrum will depend upon how far along you go in the transition on that process, okay? Now, some studies have contradicted that this is the best practice. And when I say some studies, there has not been a great deal of medical or scientific research into kind of this and how this affects people with gender dysphoria. There has not been enough. There definitely has not been enough studies. It's been accepted hook, line, and sinker as a result of political ideologies. So, just going to very briefly explain kind of the major study, okay? So, I want to highlight a guy for you called Dr. Paul McHugh. Dr. Paul McHugh was the chief psychiatrist at John Hopkins Gender Clinic, which is part of John Hopkins University, University Medical Hospital. It's attached to a university. Okay, so he was a big dog. He was a clever, clever, clever man, and his role was chief psychiatrist. His role was to help people when, with kind of the function of their brains and how that connects with kind of their lives and things like that, okay? He was not convinced that the practice of sex reassignment surgery was the best practice and best way of treating gender dysphoria, which is significant because his hospital and his clinic was the one that pioneered the surgery. Okay, so he, 
went and he asked someone to do some research. So I'm going to read you an excerpt from when Harry became Sally. Okay, so this is an excerpt from that book. McHugh encouraged John Mayer, a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst at Hopkins, to follow up with adults who had undergone sex change operations at the hospital and determine whether the surgery was beneficial in the long term. Mayer found that only a few of the patients he tracked down some years after their surgery actually regretted the surgery. Yet most did not appear to have benefited psychologically. They had much the same problems with relationships, work, and emotions as before. The hope that they would emerge now from their emotional difficulties to flourish psychologically had not been fulfilled. While the surgery may have provided some subjective satisfaction, it brought little real improvement in well-being. After studying the evidence, McHugh decided that sex change surgery was bad medicine and was fundamentally cooperating with mental illness. Psychiatrists, he thought, could better help patients with gender dysphoria by trying to fix their minds and not their genitalia. Similar studies were conducted in Toronto and arrived at similar conclusions. Okay? The final bit of sciencey evidence that I want to give is to highlight what is a really important statistic, okay? And that is that the vast majority of gender, kind of people who look into gender who are scientists or psychiatrists or medical experts will tell you that there is a difference between a child who presents with gender dysphoria and an adult who presents with gender dysphoria. And the reason for this is a big long word called neuroplasticity, okay? The way that a child's brain develops and functions. And all the statistics say that when a child presents with gender dysphoria, 80 to 95% of those children, if they're left on their own, without any medical intervention, their gender dysphoria will resolve by the time they're 18. That's 80 to 95% of children will present. We present gender dysphoria, they, it will self-resolve. That is the statistics, that's the studies. If they're given puberty blockers, every single one of them will go on to transition with kind of further in, in terms of cross-sex hormones and surgery, okay? If they're given the puberty blockers, all of them will then think that they've got to go through with kind of the rest of the process. But if they're left to their own devices, actually it will self-resolve. That is not the advice of the vast majority of people when you walk into a doctor's surgery for children. For the vast majority of people, you'll be told to have them socially transition, to put them on puberty blockers as soon as they can to prevent puberty and to prevent any distress from developing, thing, developing kind of sex hormones and developing genitalia and things like that that they would consider kind of painful. Okay. That seems really, really scary, but it's worth knowing that actually what we're saying is we're not, we're not the religious fundamentalists that are standing as opposed to science or anything like that. Actually, kind of the view that we hold as Christians actually does marry up with some very clever people who have looked into this and are really convinced that this is not the best way of doing it. Okay? The final point that I want to make is about people. And one of the ways that I want to emphasize this is actually there is a, a group of people that get ignored by the media, they get absolutely destroyed by trans activists, um, and they are called detransitioners. 
Okay, detransitioners are people who have transitioned through often sex reassignment surgery in order to resolve their gender dysphoria, and their gender dysphoria has not resolved, and actually they've come to the conclusion that the best way for them to live is actually to come in alignment with their physical body, and so they are seeking to transition back in whatever way possible to their original biological sex. There are more of these people out there than trans activists would ever dare admit, there are more people out there that are just hurting and in pain, and there are psychologists and psychiatrists that are desperately seeking to help these people. These are the forgotten people. These are the people that are the abused and downtrodden, okay? Because the, the point that we want to make is that actually there are casualties on both sides. When we, when we talk about this as a debate, there are casualties on both sides, and when we make it into a debate, we often make casualties of the very people who the debate is about. So actually, people on the far right side of the debate who are saying this is wrong often lift people up and lift stories up, and it hurts people. And when people on the far left of the debate who are so, who are so convinced that this is the only way and this is the, you know, how dare you say anything otherwise, they lift up people and they use people or they ignore people like this, and it, it's casualties. It hurts people. It deeply affects people's lives because they're not a debate. They're a people. They're amazing, wonderful, brilliant people who are made in the image of God, and they're deeply hurting, deeply, deeply hurting. Mental health issues in people with transgender are much higher than the general population. This includes anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, and substance abuse. The rates of these things within the transgender community is much, much higher than the general population. The suicide rate amongst the transgender community is 41%. 41% of the transgender community will have attempted suicide at some point in their lives. That is opposed to the 4.6% of the general population. The disparity between the two is huge. The suicide rate amongst trans people post-surgery is 19 times higher than the general population. That's not okay. That's not okay that there are people who are struggling and hurtling and see no way out, and the only way that they consider to be out is suicide. These are people. They're people with names. They're people with families. They're people who are deeply hurting and deeply struggling. And when we lift them up and make them straw men for our arguments and about a debate, we ignore the fact that they are people created in the image of God. And we need to know that, that whilst there's all this science and where there's all this study and whilst there is a debate to be had in public squares, these are a people. And it's the people who we need to think about first and foremost in this debate. Okay, we're going to break there. I'm going to throw some questions up on the screen for people to have a chat about. We'll give it about 15 minutes um, and then we'll come back, okay? Um, I'll be wondering, so if you want to give me a wave if there's a deeply pressing thing um, that you want to ask from from that, um, please just give me a wave. Great. Okay. I know that it would be great to have a lot more time to chat about this, but obviously in the coming days, weeks, you know, please do feel free to chat about it and keep chatting about it and keep encouraging one another and stirring one another into how to best um, kind of love and serve um, people from kind of the transgender community. Um, but we've only got a limited time tonight, so that's why we're going to have to sometimes cut some of those times shorter than we would all like. Okay, so now we're going to go to the Bible. The Bible being our authority, the Bible being the place that we go to for all things when it comes to the way that humans should be, the way that humans flourish, um, and how to best live life is, is through the Bible. And we're going to go straight to Genesis 1, 
I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. I'm just going to read that out. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, we're going to start there, and that is the starting place. Okay, and the reason why that is the starting place is because we look to the way that God originally designed creation. And as we looked at last week about how actually sex was so much more than just kind of biology, but it was actually a very deliberate thing on behalf of God to show something much greater than just sex in terms of actually we said it was about the union of heaven and earth. Actually, so too is the idea of our our sex and our gender is so much greater than just our biology and our makeup. That actually that what we look as we see and read that God created us in his own image is that there is a purpose to us being created as male and female. There is a purpose of humanity and that purpose of humanity is to image God. That you and I were created to image God. That the purpose, the very purpose of humanity, it was that we were created to image and reflect God in the world that he had made. To have dominion and exercise that dominion together as male and female. That God made male and female specifically because they imaged him together, and when they worked together, they exercised his dominion and his rule and his reign. It is his plan for planet Earth, is for male and female working together, imaging him for his glory and our good. There is not a plan B. There is not a scale of gender. God has done this not out of harshness, not out of cruelty, not to limit us, but because actually by being us as we are within our sexes, in our genders, we image and reflect God bringing glory to his name, which is what we're created for and what he deserves, but also it is for our good. That the way that humans are designed to flourish is in our assigned sexes, in our assigned genders. That we are designed and created to flourish in that space. And when we come out of that space, we do not flourish. And that is the truth that God calls the attention to. In verse 31 of Genesis 1, God looks at all that he's made with the addition of Adam and Eve and says it's very good. When God says something is very good, God who is good means that it is like him. That it is not just good, it is very good. There is something in the presence of Adam and Eve together which reflects God's creation and reflects God in a way that wasn't present when it was just the animals when it was just the land and the sea, when it was just the birds and the plants. There was, there's something more to creation in God putting Adam and Eve in creation that says it's very good. Adam and Eve being the pinnacle of creation, that God created them as male and female to image and reflect him and have dominion over everything else to show who he is, to expand through being male and female together God's kingdom over the whole earth, his dominion, his rule, his reign. But it's through male and female. There is no other category and there is no other route to human flourishing. And there is no other plan that God has 
for people in order for them to exercise God's dominion over the earth, in order to image and glorify him. To glorify him, you have to be within your assigned gender. Not because God is cruel and wants to restrain you, but because God has designed that in such a way that that is the only way which you can flourish. The only way which you can fully represent him to the world around you. In other words, everyone's better living in God's world, God's way. Okay? And the theme of male and female, it continues throughout the whole Bible. And there's never any separation in the Bible between body and gender. And this isn't just because there's something, this isn't something that they've come in to, you know, this isn't something that they're not thinking about. It's not that we've reached, and we've reached the period of enlightenment, you know, the arrogance of saying that everyone else was wrong and we've got it right. That every other generation, culture, much clever thinker, thinkers than us, much clever designers and engineers, people who have done incredible feats for humanity, people who have done incredible things, and yet we are the only people that's got it right. Every other culture, every other period of people in history, they've got it wrong. We've got it. There's an arrogance to that belief and that thought process. And the reason why the Bible doesn't say there is a, there is a distance between gender and biological sex, well, the Bible doesn't say there is more than one gender, there is more than two sexes, is because there is a reason why God created us as sexes, God created us as genders. There, there is, the body is a big deal in the Bible. It's not that God just, God put our souls into whatever vehicle kind of works best. It's not that the truest nature of who we are is kind of the really, really important bit and our bodies are just kind of this meaningless, malleable, plastic thing that surgeons can change. It's that actually the body is a big deal. We are deliberately embodied people. God did it on purpose. He deliberately gave us bodies. He deliberately gave us hands and feet and brains and genitalia. And we see this when Jesus came. Because when Jesus comes, Jesus comes as an embodied man. If all that was truly important about God was his spirit and his presence, Jesus wouldn't need to come as man. The point being that Jesus is man. Jesus came as an embodied man to represent us. He came as an embodied man to represent us with biological sex and gender. And when Jesus rose again, he doesn't supersede gender. When Jesus rises again in a resurrection body that is perfected, he rises in a gendered, biologically sexed body. Bodies are really important to God. Bodies are really important to God's design and plan and purpose for creation. That God has done this in a way, if there was anyone that doesn't have to fit the mold, it's Jesus. If the body was lesser than what God intended, Jesus wouldn't have filled it. The point is that Jesus was embodied. There was no, there was no kind of sense of God going, oh, we, maybe we could create something new and different for him. Jesus looks like us. He walks like us. He talks like us. Okay? And there is hope in our future, and that hope for our future is not that we're going to be these ethereal floating spirits or like angels playing harps, but that when Jesus comes again, we are going to rise bodily. We are going to have resurrection bodies, physical, physical bodies that 
can be felt and touched and can do things physically. That Jesus is renewing a new creation that is physical and will be inhabited by physical people with resurrection bodies. That this is, this is throughout the Bible. We are embodied people. That the body is in detail and specific and for a reason to image and glorify God. And that doesn't change when God renews everything. It remains the same. I mean, apart from the fact that they're not going to decay and there's going to be no pain and misery, we will be physical people. They are resurrection bodies. People put their fingers through Jesus's, the holes in Jesus' hands. People sat and watched him eat food. It was a physical body. And our hope and our future as Christians are physical resurrection bodies. That we are to inhabit a physical creation. With, and that's better news than sitting and floating around, floating around on clouds with harps. That's a better news. That's a better future. That's God's future for us. But it's physical, bodily future. In resurrected bodies. In the way it was always meant to be. And now in this time and space, our bodies are a big deal as Christians for another reason. And the reason why that our bodies are a big deal as Christians now is because of something that 1 Corinthians describes. Okay, So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20 says, Or do you, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I don't want to take that out of context. That is talking about sexual immorality. Okay? That is talking about sexual immorality. I don't want to take it out of context and say, this is God is talking about transgender here. He's not. He's talking about sexual immorality, Paul is. But the principle is the same. The reason why our bodies are a big deal is because our bodies are the hosts of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God, which rose Jesus from the dead, that was present in creation, is in us. That we are living temples. We are living temples. The people that bear and carry the presence of God in our body. God doesn't float around next to us. He is present with us in our bodies. He fills our bodies. Okay? Now, a big the big thing around the transgender movement is that our body is this malleable plastic kind of thing that can be changed and shaped because what truly matters is that inside. And what God says is that you can't separate that which is within you and that which is outside of you. That the true nature of who you are is both together. You don't tear them apart. Because actually, we as Christians are temples of the Holy Spirit. And even if you're not a Christian, your body is an image-bearing machine of God. That you bear the image of God in your body as you live your life. You reflect him to his glory. However, we do live in a Genesis 3 world. And that is a world marred and impacted by sin. And gender dysphoria is a result of that. For someone to be so distressed and in pain at feeling at odds with their body in their mind is a horrible, terrible thing. And it was not part of God's original design and creation. We don't read about it. It wasn't there. That is a result of a Genesis 3 world. And a point that I would like to make is that as a result of the fall and of sin, that we all suffer with some form of dysphoria. 
In fact, as a result of sin and the fall, we all have a dysphoria. And I'm not comparing our dysphoria with gender dysphoria because it's not the same. I'm not saying they're the same, and I wanted that to be clear. I'm not saying they're the same. However, it's worth noting that before we came to Christ, we lived with a deep dysphoria. And that deep dysphoria is that we were created to live in a unity and relationship with God, but we were, so, we were separated from sin. And no matter how hard we tried, no matter how good we were, no matter how much we worked, no matter what we did, we couldn't get right with God. We weren't at peace with God. There was a deep dysphoria. And that dysphoria doesn't resolve until in Jesus, by the grace of God, Jesus comes and saves us and sets us free. But that dysphoria isn't resolved. And even now as we are in Christ, that we have this dysphoria, even though Jesus has sacrificed himself on the cross for us. We're not fully free from the effects of that. There is this incongruence, to use that word, for us who are in the world, but not of it who are present here in creation, whilst at the same time being seated in the heavenly places. So Ephesians 2.6 says that we are seated right now in the heavenly places with God. And yet, I'm also standing right here in front of you. There is a dysphoria that I feel being born again as a Christian, being a new creation, and yet not yet being with God. That is a dysphoria. Like we would call that all sorts of other things. We'd call that attention. We'd call that kind of something that we kind of look to or struggle with or work through. But it's dysphoric, right? There's a dysphoria to it that we live as those who are in the world but not of it. As those who have been made new and yet are not yet fully whole. And actually, this is so true for every Christian that we have this deep dysphoria of being set free from the power and slavery to sin whilst daily falling into temptation and sin. There's a dysphoria that we feel in that, right? That we've been set free from the power of sin. Sin no longer enslaves us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet every day we sin and we're tempted and we fall short. That's a dysphoria in our body. We feel that, right? In our hearts and our spirits, we feel that dysphoria within us. Paul says in Romans 7, 15, For I do not understand my own, act my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Like That's a dysphoria in Paul's life, in Paul's heart that he's talking about. And finally... In each of us, there is a yearning in our hearts to experience the fullness of what Jesus did for us in a way that we do not yet experience it. We are those who are free, waiting for our ultimate freedom. We are those who are new, waiting for renewed bodies. Yeah? We are those who are whole and yet waiting to be made perfectly whole in Christ. Yeah? We feel there is this dysphoria that we feel. And we know that there is a day coming when Jesus returns, and on that day, every kind of dysphoria will erupt into euphoria as we stand in the presence of God, whole and complete, fully seen, fully loved, worshipping the God of our salvation for all eternity. To quote Andrew Walker, we live in a Genesis 3 world with a Genesis 1 blueprint on a trajectory to a Revelation 21 future. That's how we live. 
Okay. We're going to have a break and have some more questions. Okay, so if we just get back onto our tables and have a chat and I'll bring us together in a little bit, okay? Okay. We'll make a start as everyone's running around getting drinks and coming back from the loo. They can jump in. I, uh, I realized that last week, as I was doing kind of the, the talk um, on sex and pornography, I made a point of saying, actually, it's always really good as Christians to look at what Jesus says, and that I hadn't mentioned what Jesus said. So I'm going to do that now, um, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 4, and it says, he answered, this is a, in response to a question about divorce, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he goes on to quote Genesis 2. Okay, so Jesus affirms Genesis 1. Jesus affirms Genesis 1, male and female. And it is, again, it's, it's worth noting, it's worth saying. Um, Jesus wasn't kind of quiet on the topic of gender or sex or sexuality even, but actually that Jesus spoke about it and spoke into it. And what he did was confirm what God had said was good at the very beginning in creation. Okay? So before we moved on, I just thought it was important to, to make that as a point. Okay? Now, we're going to do in this last session, this last little bit, is we're going to talk about our response, the church's response. And ultimately, we could have had a session on the first bit where we introduced it and explained all the science and the terms and the thought behind it. We could definitely have had more of a session on the Bible and everything that says and how that applies and how we work that through. And we could also definitely spend an entire session and probably should spend an entire session looking at the church as an, our response as a church to people in the trans community. I'm going to say up front that the vast majority of what I'm going to say in this point is not about how you help someone who is transgender become a Christian and the discipleship process and what following Jesus looks like for them. I'm just going to say up front, that's not what I'm going to say. Because for the vast majority of people who are trans that we will come into contact with or who suffer gender dysphoria that we come into contact with will probably not be Christians, okay? Just making that assumption, and I think that's probably a fairly fair assumption, okay? If you want to talk about that, in fact, it would probably be very good for us to talk about that, can I encourage you to ask that as a question, okay? How would we effectively help someone who is transgender or gender you know, has gender dysphoria or has even gone through sex reassignment surgery, faithfully live out their identity as a Christian um, when they become a Christian, okay? But we're not, we don't have, we don't have time, sorry, um, to cover that particular topic. But what our response should be as a church to the transgender community, to kind of people that we come into contact with in the workplace, in schools, in, in those places who, who would say they are transgender or who have had an experience or are having an experience of gender dysphoria, Okay. Now, the reason why I wanted to make kind of the point about dysphoria as the last point that I made in terms of the Bible is because actually the way that we should approach people who are transgender is with humility and compassion. One, because that is the way which Jesus approaches everyone with humility and passion. And compassion. You know, Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus, who, though being in the very nature God, considered equality with God, not something to be grasped, but emptied himself, being found in human likeness, taking the form of a servant. Okay? That that is where Jesus comes from. And if we are to follow Jesus, we follow Jesus in humility by humbly serving people. 
and through having compassion. Okay? And one of the ways where it's really important to talk about, actually, we also have an experience of dysphoria, is that we should be able, therefore, to talk to people who have a gender dysphoria with humility. Because we know that we are not whole. And we are not perfect. And that actually, we feel an incongruence between who we are in Christ and who we will one day be. And the only reason why we, that is resolved for us is because by the grace of God in Jesus, through nothing we have done, through nothing we're going to do, God, by his grace and mercy, reached out and said, I love you, I want you, and revealed himself to us. And we came to know through nothing we have done, through the grace of God alone. And that should give us ultimate humility in talking to people because we're not better than them. We're not better than them. We are not better than transgender people. We are not better than them. We are people who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And it should give us a humility to interact with everyone, no matter where they're from or what they're claiming, with humility and compassion and show them the grace which we were shown in Jesus. And as soon as we start saying, no, those people are too far, those people can't be shown grace, it's at that moment that we are separating ourselves from Jesus and who he is and what he has done. We're in serious danger if we start looking at people groups, people we maybe disagree with and saying, no, they do not deserve the grace of God on their lives. Neither did we. Neither did we. And as a result, we should show humility and grace to people. And compassion, because Jesus' ministry on earth was characterized by it, by seeing people in pain, by seeing people lost in sin, people who are forgotten or blind and being moved emotionally in an affection towards them that led him to action. You know, you read this all the time that Jesus is moved by people. Jesus is moved by the crowds. He has compassion on them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And he's moved towards them in compassion. That Jesus has that over people again and again and again. And that he was criticized by the religious relief for eating with those who no one else would because of who they were. Okay? Even to the point where he has to have this analogy where he goes, well, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick, right? He has to come up with an analogy for explaining to religious people why he's eating with people who are broken and hurting and sinful. He has to try and explain it to, in a way that they don't understand from scripture. And actually, that is the compassion that God has called us to. Phil Wilthew, in his excellent talk, gives this challenge to his church, and he says, when's the last time that someone religious criticized you for who you had around your dinner table? And I just thought that was a brilliant, brilliant comment. Because I have never been criticized by anyone for who I have around my dinner table. Now, I like to think that's because I have very gracious friends um, and we live in a really godly church. But the reality is, is my life and the compassion and humility that I show in my life reflecting Jesus in such a way that people are taking notice and getting irritated? It's a very, very valid challenge. And this is true across Scripture. The compassion of God across scripture, particularly moved by the outcry of the the orphan and the widow for those who are downtrodden, marginalized, forgotten, or despised. That we are to have his heart, this heart, for those who are transgender or who are struggling with gender dysphoria, often because they are those people. 
often because they are the people who are used to benefit the arguments of one side or the other, who are looked upon and said, actually, you be you, you do everything, but you know all this mental health stuff that you're struggling with as a result of me saying, you be you and do what you do? I don't really, I don't really want to come into contact with that. You should be better. Just live out your identity. You'll be great. You'll be fine. The issue is you're not being you, so be you, you'll be great. And then they're not. And who picks that up? 41% suicide rate amongst those who are trans. And it's because Jesus' heart is with them, okay? Jesus' heart is with them. That we have to have his heart. Our heart should be moved towards them and not away from them. And we should move towards them and not away from them. Okay. This next bit is, I kind of put, how to be a light to the trans community, okay? So people who are transgender, gender dysphoric, gender fluid, etc., etc. And this is based out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, where Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, and I think that is the blueprint that we need to give when it comes to loving the transgender community, people who are trans, people who are gender fluid, is letting our light shine, letting the light of Jesus, the love of Jesus, what God has done in us, shine before others, showing them our good works, being the one who bridges the gap, being the one who is the friend, being the one who loves, being the one who invites, being the one who, for the thousandth time, picks up the phone to talk about the same issue, being those people so that God is glorified. So the glory of God in heaven, that people recognize who we are because of the light that is in us and give glory to God. Because love looks like something. Okay? Love looks like something. And James 2.26 says that faith without works is dead. Okay? So I'm just going to give six ways that what love can look like. Okay? They're going to be very quick. Don't worry, when you heard six, everyone just kind of went, oh my goodness, that's a lot of points. They're going to be quick. Okay. The first one is community. Community. We are a family. Okay? Christchurch, we are a family. And we are the family of God. And that really, really, really does look like loving one another. And that really, really, really does look like inviting other people into the family. Inviting other people into the family. Invite them in. Letting them get a look in. Letting them have a seat at the table. Letting them be involved in our friendships, not be so insular as to go, well, this is my group and this is the select group and I like this group, I'm not going to engage with anyone else, but to love and to have them, to support them. You know, as a family, if you have got a, a family member who's going through a difficult time, you are there and you're present and you're present for the long haul. And many of these issues with people who, have transgen who are transgender or have gender dysphoria or gender fluid, these issues will last for the rest of their lives. Aside from a miracle of God, these issues will last for the rest of their lives. And we need to be people who are present for the rest of their lives in these issues. The day that trans people are regularly found around Christian homes for dinner because of the love and care that's shown to them, even when we disagree, even though we disagree with them, is the day that the love of Jesus is shown and reflected to that community. Second point is this. Stand with them and for them. Okay, so we've already talked about the mental health kind of statistics. We've already talked about the suicide statistics. These people are often subject to intense verbal and physical abuse. Okay, these guys are beaten, physically beaten, because of the way that they dress, 
because of the way that they act, because of who they claim to be, by people who don't understand or don't like it. There are people who are abused by the same culture and community that's saying, you be you, you do you, and then make all the snide comments behind their backs. Okay? We need to stand with them, and we need to stand for them, because they are worthy of dignity and honor and respect, because they are image bearers of God. They show the grace and humility and compassion of Jesus to them. Okay? We need to stand with them and stand for them. So that means if your people are losing jobs or are being ostracized by family and friends, you go up to them and you say, I'm so sorry, that sucks. I'm here for you. Can we get a coffee? Can, do you want to come around for dinner? Let's talk about that. Let's think, like, I, I'm, I'm here. Okay? If in your work they're being passed over because they are transgender, then actually you need to speak up. And you need to go to that person, and you need to go to your boss, and you need to have that conversation. And when stuff is hard, we need to stand with them, next to them. Okay? We need to be people who weep with those who weep. Because that's the grace and compassion of Jesus. The third thing that love looks like is to listen. Okay? Andrew Wilson, in his talk, has this incredible phrase that I love, and he says, this is how you speak to someone who has got transgender, who is transgender, he says. You say this to them. Or you don't say this exactly, because if you just repeat this over and over, it would be weird, but you say something along these lines in terms of you have the conversation along this line. God loves you. I love you. We, the church, love you. You tell me what it's like to be you. Okay? And I just think that's a fantastic model for speaking to someone about this. If we don't suffer with gender dysphoria, we have got no idea what the experience of it is like. And to go to someone and to say, let me define your problem for you without them ever getting a look in, that's not love, and that is not care, and that is not the way that we, that's not the way that family works. It's not the way that compassion works. We need to listen. I love you. We love you. God, above everything else, loves you. You tell me. Help me understand. I want to understand. Even if we come to a different conclusion on what's best for you, I want to understand. People should never say that we didn't try and understand them. People should never say that as Christians, when we speak about Jesus, we don't hear what they have to say. Okay. James 1.19 encourages us to be quick to hear, slow to speak. And we do well to heed those words. Okay. Be quick to hear and slow to speak when addressing them. I want to address something now that I know a lot of people have, and it's a bigger, it is a much bigger conversation that we don't have time for now. So if it doesn't fully answer your questions or you have more as a result of it, text them in or write them down and we'll try and get to it. I want to talk about something called dead naming. Okay? Dead naming, which is one of the things in the list of your terms, is the process of calling someone the name that they had prior to them transitioning. Okay, so if I was Sam and became Samantha and someone refused to call me anything other than Sam, that is called dead naming something, someone. That has a word in our culture. Okay, now, the, the, again, like, we're talking about building relationships with people who aren't Christians, and this is primarily the place I'm speaking to into this. And me and I've had that conversation as well, I think it's probably important to say that. Um, I think if they come to you and you knew that they were at some point Derek and they've decided to be Fiona, you call them Fiona. 
if they're introducing themselves to you as Fiona, you call them Fiona. Because what you're ultimately doing by calling them Derek is refusing to have any kind of conversation. You're deliberately breaking a bridge of relationship before you can, before you can have that relationship enough to at least talk about what it looks like for them. Okay? The way that someone described it to me, a girl called Rachel Martin, she said that the bridge of your relationship should be strong enough to withhold the challenge that you give to someone. Okay? And I just thought that's a great analogy. That if the bridge of your relationship isn't strong enough to challenge someone, then build the bridge some more and wait for the challenge. And that's just a really good principle to give in terms of building relationships with people. The fourth thing is this. We need to stop enforcing gender stereotypes that aren't in the Bible. We need to stop enforcing gender stereotypes that aren't in the Bible. And what I mean is this. Men are designed to be rugged and go hiking and do press-ups, and women like dressmaking and flower arranging, and if you don't do those things, you are not acting feminine or masculine. Okay? Now, it sounds silly, and it's funny to laugh at like this, but actually, how much of that is present in our thinking and the way we interact between people? Okay? So my dissertation at uni... I say dissertation, it was just a long essay. We didn't do proper dissertations. But my long essay at uni was about the idea of Christian masculinity and the amount of books that I read about how to be a man and the amount of books that talked about being rugged and being in the wilderness and having adventure and having long beards was ridiculous. Absolutely bonkers. That's nothing about what the Bible says a man is. And actually, I don't have time to go into it now, but actually... The Bible says that, that men and women are equal in value, dignity, and purpose. The command of Genesis 1, to be fruitful, fruitful fill the earth, and subdue it, was to this, is the same command to both men and women. Okay? God gives man the command to work and to keep and creates woman to help him with that purpose. Okay? There are gender roles, and we would say that, that men and women are equal in value, dignity, and purpose. And there are gender roles, okay? And we maybe will do another session on what that looks like, because we definitely do not have time to go into it now. But the point being that those are not specific stereotypes. It's not that men have to be good with tools and women have to be good with kids. Yeah, those, those aren't the stereotypes the Bible doesn't give specific stereotypes. So Cy's got a great story of you know, his mate James coming over to, to kind of UK and James trying to hold his hand as they do in Africa and it's perfectly normal and Cy having to explain to him that if he held his hand here, he, people would think they were gay. You know, there's a gender stereotype there, right? Like that's a, and actually, if we're prescriptive about that in churches and say, no, this is what a man looks like, this is what a woman looks like, they're these really rigid, strict things, and if you're not wearing this thing or doing these things, you're not asking, acting masculine or feminine enough, actually, we completely reduce it, and we make it impossible for people who may have gender dysphoria to walk into our churches and feel comfortable. Because they don't fit the mold. Of course they don't fit the mold. 90% of people often, like, when, when they're doing different things, don't fit someone's mold somewhere. And actually, we need to stop building these stereotypes around stuff that the Bible never builds. Never builds. You know? If, the, if there is a couple and the woman is into wrestling and cars and the man is into dog shows and flower arranging, it does not make them wrong. There's no stereotype there that the Bible speaks into. Yeah? 
There's very specific things that there are roles for men and for women, and again, that's something that we need to talk about probably in a later session. But they're not that, they're not that descriptive. They're not that specific. We need to stop making it about that. We need to not freak out when a boy, as a kid, picks up a doll or when a girl picks up a truck. We need to not freak out about that. Okay? And to not be so rigid in the way that we think about it. Okay. Fifth thing, thing that I find most challenging, we need to walk the walk. Okay? And what I mean by this is in Luke chapter 9, verses 23, Jesus says this. And he said to all, all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Okay? The point being this, that if we're saying to someone at some point, if God has given us the relationship and we've been able to share the gospel and they've said, I want to follow Jesus, and we say to them, actually, what this looks like for you, despite how you're feeling mentally, even with, you know, we're going to help you, but the best thing for you, the best way to live is for you to live out in, your, in terms of your biological sex. It's your, to live your life in your biological sex, even though you feel like you are a different gender. That is the best thing in God for you, and that's what we want to help you to do when all the world says differently, and we over here are cheating on our tax forms, or we over here are watching things that we shouldn't, or we over here are gossiping behind people's backs, then why on earth would they do that? Why would they give up something that the world tells them will make them happy? Why would they do the really hard work of daily denying themselves and following Jesus if we're not even willing to do it with the little things over here, with the middle class acceptable sins that we build into our churches? They will ne- and it's the same issue we have with Muslims, right? That when Muslims come to faith, and they know that coming to faith in Jesus means giving up everything, their family, their social circumstances, and everything, and they do that, and we're over here, gossiping behind people's backs, lying through our teeth, chatting on, you know, cheating on our tax forms, and basically not following Jesus, as he's called us to, then it creates this absolute hypocrisy, and where we say, actually, you give up everything, but I don't have to. And it's wrong. If we want to love transgender people, people with gender dysphoria well, we need to walk the walk. We have to walk the walk. We have to live for Jesus because otherwise we're resigning them to a second-class Christianity where they're the only ones really struggling or they're the only ones really having to give anything up. We need to deny ourselves daily, crucify, put to Jesus the sins in our life and follow him. Because we otherwise, why should we call other people to do it if we're not willing to do it ourselves? Okay. Sixth thing is this, and it's much more happy. It's we need to share the gospel. People who are transgender, people who have got gender dysphoria, who are gender fluid, need the gospel just as much as everyone else. There is not a different gospel for them. There is not a different level that Jesus has to go through. There's not more sin that Jesus has to take. There's not a different way we have to present it. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you, taking on the punishment for your sins and the wrath of God against you for that, so that you can be with God now in this life and for all eternity. It's the same gospel. It's not different. And we don't need to be scared to share that gospel because it's good news 
It's good news to transgender people. It's good news to cisgender people. It's good news to people who've got a gender dysphoria, and it's good news to people that have got some other kind of dysphoria. It's good news. And we, don't need to be, we can't be afraid of sharing the good news. Because God is in the business of saving, restoring, caring, and being present in the lives of people. And we need to share the gospel with them. Okay, we're going to have time for some questions. I think we will still have time for some questions. Um, there are certain things I haven't said, and there are things that maybe you want to kind of bring up. I just want to say, we've already, so what happens if a trans person becomes a Christian? What do I do if my kid comes out as trans? How is transgender different from, trans, from gender fluid? And how do I effectively speak out against the transgender agenda in my workplace? Okay? There would be some questions that I've not addressed in any way. Okay? And actually, we don't have time, so I'm not going to. Um, so text them in. Um, or ask me separately. Okay? Right, we're going to have some final time for some questions. We are on quarter past nine. Um, so I think, if, shall we say, if you need to go, go. But if you want to stay in chat, stay. Is that all right? Do you want to pray for us now? Sorry. Great. Okay. Wow. It's a, a lot to take in, a lot to process. Can we thank Sam again for another excellent talk? He's uh, served us so, so well with that. And uh, I'm sure it's left you with lots more questions. And that's why... The very last uh, week of this is given over purely to answer uh, questions that, that people have. So please do uh, write down your questions or text them in. And uh, we've got the last, let's say, last session, uh, and these are five that we're doing to, um, to answer those questions. Next week, we're back here.